Beardy and the Beast Media Club. This is placeholder intro song. Thank you for joining us at Beardy and the Beast Media Club. Today we are talking about Darren Aronofsky's film Requiem for a Dream. This is based off the novel of the same name by Herbert Shelby Jr. With me, as always, is my partner in crime, Drew. Hey. Please be sure to like, follow, all of that stuff on your platform of choice. Full list can be found at beardyandthebeast.com. Spoilers will not be cut off here, unlike some gangrenous arms. <laughs> so, Drew, dream or nightmare? Uh, the only way I can answer this isn't representative of my finger quotation enjoyment of the film. I would say nightmare. Yeah, I mean the, the the film itself is set up to be extremely negative. Mm. Uh, so for a direct answer to that question, it would definitely be a nightmare. Yeah. Well, I mean it's a requiem for a dream too, right? So I mean, requiems generally aren't the good things. Mm-hmm. Like it's the idea of remembering the dreams that you had, not necessarily obtaining said dreams oh for sure the i'd like to think that oh like how highly rated and discussed this movie is i'd probably have like fully agreed across the board if i was at a simply just a different phase in my life yeah if it if it hit me in my early 20s or my late teens because i hadn't seen the movie up until now and the movie's what, like twenty five years old? Twenty twenty three or twenty two, I think. Yeah. Yeah, two thousand. A weird headspace. The things that it was discussing, the things like falling into like addiction and trying to obtain obtain desires. I think I think it was able to illustrate these things well mm. but in such an uncomfortable way yeah at least for me i i was deeply uncomfortable for like the majority of the film and it was all like it was all emotional mm -hmm. like everything about it just had me on the edge of my seat not in in that like thriller frightened or that exciting I'm propped up, but more in the, like, I want to exit or I want to leave what is occur currently occurring to occurring. Yeah. Um, what is happening to me, but I also don't want to. Yeah. Because of the way it's being portrayed. It's just, it was, it was interesting to me and I'm, I'm sure we'll kind of discuss, discuss that more as we discuss the film itself. Yeah. It's an interesting point. Cause like, this is one of my favorite movies. It is also one of the hardest movies for me to watch. <laughs> <laughs> and I fully understand why. Like, it's definitely a movie that's worth watching, but you're not in for a good time. <laughs> Which uh, apparently the author's actually known for that. A lot of his books are about that. Uh, I had the benefit of owning this on DVD unlike a lot of the other ones we've watched where we've had to watch on streaming services. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I miss DVDs. 
I love those bonus contents and just like mm. and stuff like that. I didn't listen to the director's commentary, but I did end up watching something with the author itself himself. A lot of his motivation, apparently, a lot of the stuff he's known for is exploring uh, the human suffering. And a lot of that comes from his life, too. So it's it's a lot of his film or a lot of his books are like that. And I think the the film adaptation of it, I, I haven't read the book, but I assume that it illustrated it well, or at least that feeling, because I, I had this this feeling while watching the film that it would hit anyone who watched it some personal way. Mm-hmm. Like on myself, I'm actually like hyper addictive when it comes to pretty much anything. Yeah. That is your your sugars. I'm an ex smoker. Hell, love. Like mm-hmm. I go like through physical withdrawals after a relationship <laughs> ends. I may remember a situation like that. <laughs> so having that explored by a film so directly mm-hmm. was like it was it was very. It was disturbing to me. Yeah. I actually had, at the end of the film, I had a mini depressive episode where I just had to like go for a walk and wind. Yeah. I'm watching an hour and 40 minute film. Yeah. And I wasn't invested in the characters at all. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe Sarah. Yeah. The, well, I'm, I think it, that's an interesting thing with, with the film. Like it's, he explored the human conditions it's not necessarily about a character in general just about what can happen and and that emotional aspect um a big thing both aronofsky and and selby said um selby actually did write the screenplay as well for this so Mm. they their focus was the emotions of it not necessarily i mean obviously the plot's there as well but uh, they really wanted to have that emotional resonance, resonance, and they there's a lot of music choices and cinematography choices in that that are done really well. I think that helped drive that home. It's it's it kind of draws to light some of the older style filmmaking and directing choices that I kind of miss. That is everything being very particular everything having a purpose every shot it's not just oh that looks cool yeah i remember seeing something like the doctor only says the name of the drug to sarah or so the only time you see the doctor's eyes is when he was saying the name of the drug to sarah yeah stuff like that like you i feel like those choices may not be made as frequently anymore but then again when you have a film environment that is majority superhero blockbusters yeah it probably overshadows films of this nature yeah i mean we're not i I can't even think of a film that over the last five years that would hit as as hard as requiem or even darko like all, all these kind of like where in the last five years is your american beauty yeah no, it, it's it's very true. Yeah, I know that a lot of the stuff was very, was very deliberate. Apparently, like, speaking of the doctors and Sarah, like, the one doctor was 
actually told, like the only stage direction he was given apparently was never look at her. Mm. And he's like, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> Some of the shots that, you know, I think have become a little more known now with GoPros and such like that. Like the, the fixed camera on the actor. Right? As they kind move around. Kind of, and... Yeah. Like that was like a 40 pound rig that they were wearing mm. when they did that. Right. Cause there wasn't GoPros, you know, <laughs> 25 years ago. Oh, like, um, Connolly, <laughs> Marion, uh, going into the elevator after seeing the, like selling out to the shrink. Yeah. Uh, going into that elevator, like having a rig like that, especially at that angle would have been very awkward. Yeah. Or, well, I mean, um, Marlon Wayne's Tyrone, he ran with that thing. Gee, yeah. <laughs> and like, I'm not a, I'm not a weak guy. Like, I'm fairly ath- athletic. I play field sports, and having a forty pound thing hanging off my front or back while having to run or just move around in a manner that's not awkward would be very difficult. Yeah, a couple of other cool cinematography things that I'd like that I mention here. I really liked how they um, showed Sarah's descent. You no, know, basically while she's on. Well, no, not her descent. This is before her descent. Um, like her when she was on the uppers, mm. right? And they had that like twenty-five second scene of her just manically cleaning her apartment. And ap- apparently, that took forty minutes to film, <laughs> and they actually had like a robotic camera set up to move once a second, an eighth of an inch to, to get that effect. That's dedication. <laughs> that gave me kind of seeing, seeing uh, Sarah on upwards is when the whole movie started. I wouldn't say collapsing. Cause that makes you think of the entire film as a whole. I'm thinking um, when my emotional state that was invested in this movie started collapsing. Yeah. Would be the best way to say it. And it does come back to all those, those very particular and selected shot choices. Yeah. Stuff like shots from the TV's point of view, looking down on Sarah. Yeah. As if it was like this thing looming over her. Yeah. What was some of the other stuff? They, they always talk about how many cuts are in this movie. Yeah. How there was like uh, 2000 or some such instead of the 600, 700 you'd usually see. And yeah. For the most part, I actually found that disorientating. Hmm. However, when it slowed down was when people were actively contemplating not taking, you know, the drug of choice or uh, resisting that temptation. And that's what pulled that, that style together for me. Yeah. Because it made the slowdowns and the speed ups actually have a purpose when it came to what was going on with the characters in the film and how it was impact, how the world and their choices were impacting them at that time. Yeah. If that I makes mean, sense. Other things. Oh, sorry. Oh, if that makes sense. Oh no, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Uh, that was actually some of the deliberate choices. So um, they call it the hip hop montages, like of the, like when they're taking drugs and such like that. Like the only time you don't see that happening is when, the characters actively resisting mm. another aspect why there's going to be a lot of cuts is they made the deliberate choices to 
have the characters like they did a split frame like two completely different shots they're literally sitting like lying beside each other sitting beside each other which kind of shows the which from an artistic point of view shows that even though they're together they're separate right but that's going to add to that cut count as well a good chunk mm. right? and again all for a purpose yeah that does really like illustrate the characters themselves and their various for lack of a better term at this time descent in in the film yeah it definitely separates them on a story basis as well telling you that each one of these is a unique identity as in uh harry and marion you're not supposed to view them together you're supposed to see them as two individuals who are impacted by each other yeah just to elaborate more on what i think you're saying yeah and and that's exactly it right like they're one of the ways i i heard the the way they were trying to show the characters and such like that was it's the addictions that are present throughout the film it's it's more about trying to fill a void Mm -hmm. almost right so for for whatever reason so you know you have Sarah is instead of trying to deal with her loneliness, she's giving into TV. And then when she thinks she has the option to be on TV, you know, that just becomes her sole motivating purpose. And she had a couple of fantastic monologues saying that too. And, and the different types of addictions that she was experiencing. Yeah. Well, and just the, the replacement of one with another, for instance, yeah. foods for the and downers. Watching TV itself for the glamour of being on TV. Yeah. It was the, um, I think that's what they were showing with uh, Marion and Harry. They were split apart because it wasn't about them having a relationship. It was about them filling a void within, within themselves. So even their relationship was almost a, like slightly addictive. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's another reason why they did those had everyone's kind of split like that. Uh, there's actually one shot that really caught my eye. It was, they they were talking in bed, I think, and like sitting up and you had Jennifer Connelly straight on and uh, Jared Leto, you just saw his profile. You never actually saw them mm. looking at each other while they were talking. Like it was such a, I don't know, it, it really caught my eye and like brought in even here they're still kind of doing that split frame aspect. I'm wondering what it would be like if if while watching this film you were to watch that scene and cover the side that say had had Leto and then watch the scene back covering the one that had Connolly. Mm. Uh just to see if you have a different perspective based on like what you're seeing there yeah so you might have to watch like an entire act of the film with that kind of perception in mind yeah but they definitely if we were to think about what uh, marion was feeling i guess harry could be a replacement for a unpresent family or as being a hookup for for her narcotic addiction an outlet eventually becomes an outlet for motivation for her getting a i didn't know what the purpose of the store was the storefront or the i assume it was a studio 
yeah studio they didn't really go into it they didn't it's it's unfortunate when i want to see something spelled out i just wanted to know what that was because that would like if they even put up like you know marion's art corner that would have given me a better idea of what um what void was being filled with it allow me to enlighten you i would like to be enlightened so um she was fashion designer is what she was trying to do and the reason why they only talk about that near the beginning of the film is you gotta remember the first act the summer act is for all of the characters involved them talk it's talking about the dreams that we're having a record for mm. sarah's dream to be on tv marion's dream to have have a her boutique or studio space tyrone and harry's you know get rich quick by you know selling drugs so that's where a lot of that comes from i think that's why we don't explore that because they dream to fill the void, but they don't, they only partially work towards it. If, if even that, and they work towards it in negative ways. Mm-hmm. I, I, I remember when they're talking, when they get their, their drugs to start selling, the first thing they do is dive into their drugs. Right. Yeah. You can see what's going to happen there. That, that makes, I collect that can knowing that connects me to Marion a little bit more because mm-hmm. I must have missed that it was supposed to be like a, like a fashion studio. I was just yeah. making assumptions while watching the movie yeah. and knowing the particular uh, vice or dream that she had right. is enlightening to me. And I guess uh, Tyrone's, I couldn't tell what it was. I knew it was a connection to his his mother because they kept having scenes to that yeah uh, which instantly made him more endearing to me than harry or marion <laughs> but that, uh it's really cool here actually <laughs> i i only got this like while researching apparently it, it was discussed after i might have been by the director or might have been in the book that he was trying to fill a void and set himself up with like a home that he didn't have as a child Mm. is what I understand it to be. Yeah. So there's a couple things with that. The void that he was trying to fill was love. Mm, Okay. And there's kind of a few interesting things with this. It's things that I didn't really catch because you don't hear them say their, their last names in the film, with the exception of Sarah and Harry, his last name's love. Hmm. And there was a deleted scene where he actually talks about losing his mother at a young age. Okay. Right. So, so there, so there was a deleted scene there around that. Um, Also word of, uh, word of God. So Selby actually said that of the characters, Tyrone was the only one that he actually saw as redeemable as well. Probably tied to that idea of love and human connection and, Mm. Yeah, because he was actively searching for something beyond himself while everyone else had a, like a selfish, selfish ambition. Yeah. Yeah, I really like Tyrone as a character and probably talking about it a little bit more later, but like Marlon Wayans just slayed this part. I, I didn't even know it was him for the longest time. And I'm like, this is the guy that was in like them spoof comedy movies. 
This movie came out the same year as Scary Movie. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> just, just killed it. Just yeah. killed it. I love seeing when a comedy actor gets into a more serious role, be it a thriller or something of this nature. Yeah. Because, I mean, let's face it, most most comedians are actually fairly dark inside. Yeah. I'm not actually surprised that he was able to pull this off, mm-hmm. that it was within his uh, uh, ability. Yeah. I guess you could say simply because of that fact. Yeah. I guess that, that brings us to, I guess, the last character. Kind of talk about what they were searching for. They were filling, and that is, of course, Joker himself, Harry Goldfarb. <laughs> I just I just saw him as someone who was selfish, looked to himself, was the search or the desire for money. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think for a moment that... Him wanting to buy a TV in some type of recompense or some type of apology towards his his mother for repeatedly stealing her TV. Like, I don't think that had anything to do with his mother. I think that was just for him. I Uh, agree. Honestly. You're doing something, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think him was, he didn't want connection. I really feel like he just wanted money and drugs. Yeah, Tim. So I see him as kind of the, I mean, I know there's four intersecting stories, but we, we you can kind of break it down to two main stories. You have Sarah's story and Harry's story. Mm. Tyrone and Marion are connected to Harry's story mm. very directly. So I think to me, Harry represented the typical view of an addict, mm. right? It, it was very much the i'm abusive when i don't have what i want and can be sweet when i do have what i want uh you see him like right at the beginning of the film you have he did a trek to sell that tv to get a hit yeah so i think that's that's the big thing with with him as a character i think he's supposed to be that complete stereotypical one whereas you have sarah being the probably more probably more accurate view of how a lot of people get addicted to things mm, mm. right um which i think is possibly why you connect it there i mean that and ellen ellen burston's acting was Ooh. oh oh um, oh it was, it was <laughs> beautiful but before we before we just Drop all, drop all our accolades at <laughs> yeah. at her doorstep. <laughs> I wanna, I wanna, sh- I wanna, I wanna complain about Harry some more. <laughs> yeah, no, no, of course. <laughs> uh, I mean, Jared, Jared Leto did a great job portraying portraying an addict. I thought, I definitely thought he was. Apparently, he like dropped something like twenty five, thirty pounds for the film. Hung out with actual junkies. Was shooting up water. Um, yep. Yeah but was doing the physical actions to get into the role. And it, it's, I, I call it, uh, he was my Joffrey. Mm. Someone that they portrayed the character so well that, and their character is dislikable, yeah. that you dislike them in real life. <laughs> that's, 
that's what I got from the portrayal of Harry Goldfarb. He joffreyed me. Yeah. I mean, he was in Lord of War, American Psycho, Dallas Buyers. He's in a band I like. <laughs> but now I kind of dislike him a little bit. Because <laughs> he's the junkie that's going to steal my TV. And the, the thing that hit me right away that initiated this, just to complain a little bit more, he kept stealing his mom's TV. Yeah. He had all sorts of DJ and stereo equipment in his apartment. Of course. He, he could have sold any of that at any time, but he was so incredibly selfish, he'd rather steal from his elderly mother. Yeah. To fuel feel, feel his addiction. You can't get rid of your own stuff. I just... Like, I well, mean, I mean, he it, wouldn't be able to get it back. Yeah. I mean, again, that, that's the... Again, where I think he was supposed to be that stereotypical junkie. And I mean, it says it says wonders to what he's done to have this one role mm. basically color your perspective of him as an actor because he sold it. I do think there was a couple of points where, you know, there was like there there was one kind of redeemable point that I that I felt where like I actually felt he he was trying to be sincere and that was right at the end of the film when he's talking to um to marion on the phone where he's like and yeah, no, like when he's like i actively felt like no he was trying to comfort her he's like yes i'm gonna be there even though they both knew it was a lie it's interesting that you say that because i i got an opposite feeling i think the the way that i viewed that scene was in the complete opposite direction and that he was reaching out for the pure selfish motiva- motivation of him being saved. And when, it, it, it'll be odd to say, but when he was saying that he'll be there, be there soon, it was purely because he wanted to be removed from the situation he was in. So that kind of concludes in the end scene where he's lying in bed and he finally admits to herself, himself with the nurse that uh, she won't be there soon. Yeah. yeah. Like, do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I follow what you're saying. And I just had a different point of view. Yeah. On that. And, and I see, like, I think, I believe that was the original motivation for the call. Mm. But he also kind of gave it up right away. There was a couple deleted scenes. I, I, I'm not exactly sure where they fit in the film. And I think it could have added just a little bit more mm. to it. So I understand that you, you wouldn't have seen this, but of course, um, but I'll, I'll give you the context. So it was, you know, it, it was when he's at Coney Island and they're out, I think they were either scoring drugs or, or getting drugs. And he, he calls his mom and she's having one of her, one of the freak outs. Yeah. And. Well, that must've been why the phone was off its hook in that. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, that's probably exactly where it laid in, but and she's like, no, I, and she's begging him to come mm. because she's locked in the closet. Like she was at the beginning of the film freaking out because the fridge best movie monster, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> is freaking out and, and she's just begging him to come. And his response is not, I can't, I've, I've got other things to do. I've got too many other irons in the fire. Yeah. Right. So. And, and I mean, even without that scene, you see that in his character a lot, right? It's like, oh yeah, no, don't worry, mom. I'll, yeah, I'll come by. 
Mm. Right? Like, so I do think there was a lot of the selfishness. And that's why I took that last one as like, I think that might have been his original motivation, but he actually, but he didn't push it as soon as he heard her distress. And that's why I see that as that, that one moment where he might have tried to, like, showed caring. Hmm. I wonder. I did, I did with that character have that, like, you put your hand up and, like, you can't look when he was, like, shooting up and his, like, gangrenous arm. Oh. <laughs> I was just like, nope. Yep. Like, I, I am going to look away from this. That does, that doesn't really fit into what you were saying. No. No. <laughs> it was just like one one kind of last little tidbit about Harry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and yeah, I definitely can see your perspective on that as well. It's just kind of, I think a lot of the film is, I think there's a surprising amount of the film that is kind of meant to be interpretable like well, that. Yeah, especially like on your perception of the characters. Yeah. Like the the way that it was written and shot, the way that you felt about the characters would de- completely taint an like an entire situation or scene mm-hmm. within that film. So that the one that we just discussed about that final phone call would be a great example. Yeah, yeah, oh, for sure. I'd, um, just before it leaves my head, I did remember seeing something in this that made me wonder if suicide squad had a callback to requiem so when harry and marion were laying on the ground like head next to each other and their bodies were pointed out the other way Mm. they were surrounded by a circle of magazines and like cutouts Hmm. in such a way and they were like having a moment and then it, it I've tried to forget Suicide Squad. I know exactly what you're talking about now. <laughs> yeah, with Joker um, yeah. laid out. I mean, it. I think they were. They also kind of went for a, a wings thing. But I just like, I had a visual moment, and I'm like, are they, did they call back to this? I'd have to yeah. watch it again, but. <laughs> but then you'd have to watch it again. I didn't mind it. No. Get your popcorn and shove it in your face. We're gonna watch oh. some guys punch each other. Harley Quinn backflip and best part of the film. <laughs> I I liked uh, Diablo. We're talking about other movies. <laughs> um, so Ellen, it, yeah. Oh wow. Um, it it was her acting and her monologues that tied this movie together for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, even said that. Being in this film was like her best acting achievement. Yeah. Her her breakdown when she was on those those uppers and she was talking to, to Harry at the table. Mm. Just like it tore into me. Like there was something that it was it was pulling or scratching at me. And I was just so deeply uncomfortable with that entire situation because she sold it so well. Do you do you know how well she sold it? Mm. So in that same scene, you know, she kind of drifts out of frame. Yeah, that's because the cameraman was tearing up and couldn't see anymore. <laughs> yeah, that definitely would have been me if I was filming that too. Just yeah. yeah. Yeah, apparently she did 
three different takes of that monologue mm. and none of them were anywhere near the same. They were all very different interpretations of it. And yeah, apparently Aronofsky went to the cameraman to, to bring him out for losing the shot <laughs> and just looks at him and just like tears pouring down the viewfinders all fogged up. He had no idea he lost the shot. And that is one of those, as, as uh, Bob Ross would say, one of those happy little accidents mm. that just worked so well. It helped sell it. <laughs> like, just the the drop of music, that raw emotion, like, just, it was the... I could be wrong, I'm pretty sure that was the only case in the entire film where it was also a sincere call for help. A sincere scream mm. for help. And it just tears at you. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can't think of anyone else who would have been able to do that part, that effectiveness. Yeah. And to talk about selling breakdowns when after she had her, like, hyper drug-induced uh, refrigerator monster breakdown and just bolted out of the house and actually went on the subway. Yeah. Then went to the TV studio, like that entire series of scenes during the winter period. Yeah, was that winter or was that still fall? The subway, I think, like when she ran out of the house and stuff like that. That was, that was the beginning of winter. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that was in winter, because winter is when all shit goes through. Kind of that that the cutting point was her. What was the the freak out in the apartment? It was probably when she re-upped because the drugs weren't cutting it anymore. She started yeah. mixing them. It's probably the end of fall. Her additional monologue with like all the studio people around her. Yeah. And then the police police officer comes. I was like, the best way to illustrate it is the majority of this mo- movie. I didn't, I didn't feel or care for like anyone. Uh, maybe a little bit for Tyrone. He was endeared to me, but. They weren't set up in such a way that I would care for them, but I had overflowing empathy and pity when she was having a breakdown in the TV studio there. Yeah. And like all these people standing there, they have no idea what to say. Yeah. You you see that um, again, like the subway, it's the same thing. It's like they, they, she came across as that crazy person you avoid on the subway. Yeah. (laughs) And but I mean, seeing that fall there, right? It's it's interesting for a movie that's so much about suffering. Um, apparently, the author said this a lot too. Like one of the biggest things that he finds people say to him is like, "No, it just kind of brings compassion mm. because now you now you have a perspective that you wouldn't have had before." So, yeah, she's not just that crazy person. We see exactly why. She's that crazy person. What happened? Right? And it's it's powerful. Apparently, like, I think I can't remember. I think it was just before that scene, like apparently like the author was actually reading him reading her passages from the book. Like mm. about that part as well. Um one of the the things that Ellen said about this too was she's done stage acting and such as well. And she talks mm. about, you know, sometimes, you know, you get on stage and you'll get that like one moment that you, you feel like you are the character. Right. Mm. And she said like that happened to her like six times while filming this. And, and like those monologues were it. And I 
completely believed believed it like she sold it so well i think just kind of going on that the feeling for the characters i think it's interesting because at the, at the beginning of the film i kind of felt a bit for um marion as well mm. but i think i she... think it's obfuscated some like they like they almost sold it as she was going to be she was going to be brought down by Leto's character and you know doesn't you know and a bit further and you go like oh no no this is her own doing it's not him dragging her down or anything like that well she definitely uh just fully enabled Leto's character opposed to being pulled down um to start I my original what was it the roof scene Mm -hmm. is that the first scene with her yeah I think it was yeah I think so my original impression of her was a spoiled parents girl who was playing at being rebellious. Yeah. But that wasn't the case at all. Yeah. Like, she was definitely just as much into the drugs. She was just as much not a good person. Yeah. Like, with no redeemable qualities per se. Yeah. That they elaborated. Well, I mean, it, it's her fall is 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 very intriguing to me. Mm. Um, like, I mean, her ending is kind of one of those iconic scenes. As disturbing as it is, it it's it's a hundred percent iconic. And like, on the one hand, you're going, you know, you're so addicted that you're you're throwing yourself into this into this situation. But then at the same time, at the very beginning she's talking about her psychologist and how she was taught, like threading the line with that. So he wouldn't tell her parents anything and just, just following that arc to, you know, not going to like what I have to do to get the money. I, it's disturbing that she did that at the same time. It didn't seem, I don't know. It, it, it's interesting. Cause she seemed like she'd be the type to be all too willing to do that until she actually did it, if that makes sense. I guess it didn't have the same impact to me. What? Because when she, yeah, when she hooked up with the uh, psychologist to get the, was it the two two thousand dollars? Yeah, I think it was two thousand. There was a small line in there uh, about her not having a problem with the lights before or some such like that. Yeah. That wasn't so that was definitely not the first time that she had prostituted herself out for money to this this guy. Yeah. So there was a long standing history. If we were to if we were to look at not from a drug point of view, but if you were to look at I mean she definitely had multiple falls just like like multiple descents just like everyone else yeah. in this film, but if we were to look at it from like the sexual side. Yeah. It definitely started out small and ended up ramping up just like everything else. Yeah. But I didn't I didn't have any investment in that side of it. So yeah. though um that ending scene with like all the businessmen and stuff would have been disturbing for many, I was already well disturbed about her character from the whole like emotional and structural loss she had experienced. Yeah. So I guess it just didn't impact me in the same way. Mind you, it did lead to that bathtub scene. Oh, just so good. I know you know this, uh, 
short, short, short recreation of a scene from Perfect Blue. And appa apparently the director had purchased the film, the live action film rights of Perfect Blue just so he could use that scene. Yep. It's just so good. As far as it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to give this a normal, this film a normal structure because yeah. it's just all like from zero to 60 and suffering and then nothing. Yeah. But for me, her character's climax would have been that scene. Yes. Um, if, I mean, climax wouldn't be the appropriate term um, because this is not, the story is just not like standardized story structure in that way. I think climax would still be the appropriate term there. Okay. Because, yeah, because the, the climax was her doing that, like her her with um, Big Tim, right? Then to the bathroom scene mm -hmm. with, with that, 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 again, iconic bathroom scene. And um, that's where she's done. Everything else after that was because the, the, the denouement, right? It's just like, yep, this is her life now. She's getting ready and having the talk with with um, with Harry on the phone and, and, and such like that. It's like she's there so yeah no that would be yeah i'd agree that's a climax of her arc okay um and and i think the big thing with that scene i mean i think it's iconic because you know sex being evil in american media i uh, guess that, that thing and it's the it's not just what's happening to her in that scene right it, it's the fact that it's happening to her while cut with this you know ravenous crowd while cut with you know everything happening with with sarah and harry and and such as well oh another that, perspective you just kind of enlightened me to that i'll throw it out there so originally she was hooking up with the psych psychologist i imagine related to some money maybe gifts not telling her parents and then eventually she does it directly for money yeah so she can get drugs and then um, she hooks up with, what's his name, Big Tim? Big Tim, yeah. Big Tim, just straight up for drugs. Yeah. So that's the way that those encounters were increasing in intensity. Yeah. So it was no longer auxiliary. She was no longer doing it for herself as a whole. She was doing it straight up just to get effects. Yeah. And, and I guess that could actually... As you enlighten me a little bit with her arc <laughs> there, um, I think that actually might be might be part of it too, and why she why you have that turn in that disgust, which again felt that little bit odd to me at the time, as as we just mentioned. But I think she was using him as a sugar daddy, and I mean, even though you don't see anything before that scene, like there's definitely that oh you're jealous, yeah, and such like we know, but. Because they were successful selling drugs, she didn't need to call him anymore. Mm -hmm. So she was over that and then had to go back to it again. Well, yeah, originally she... So it was the moment of Well, she was using it to obtain some type of control or power over her life. Yeah. And then eventually it ended up just being a utility to get drugs. So it was no longer girl. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like Connolly killed it as well. This the scene that sealed it for me in her um 
her acting in this film was when she was staring in the mirror. Mm. And I think like she just had a like a, a draw top on or some such. Yeah. And she was staring and she looked unconfident, she looked tired, and then she did some drugs and like you could tell she felt uh shiny. Yeah. Would would be a term that's often used. Like you could tell she gained that like that drug field like confidence in herself something maybe even a little bit more like ethereal um mm -hmm. inside her head yeah like all of a sudden she was stretching in a way she was brought like open-shouldered instead of hunched over yeah um, and she didn't even say anything yeah like it was all physical acting and it was just spot on and, and um i loved that scene um not not directly with Connolly there but just because it sparked um i really liked how they juxtaposed uh, <laughs> juxtaposed her and sarah hey, wait, that's there? that's that's my shtick yeah i'm the one who mispronounces words <laughs> <laughs> no 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 getting names confused like <laughs> judges dreads that's a little bit further than the mispronunciation my friend <laughs> <laughs> the juxtaposition of um her and sarah there um kind of caught my eyes it's like that it obviously sarah was having her her body issues mm. right because she can't fit in that dress anymore cut to jennifer Connolly standing in a mirror which is exactly what i would expect for a psa for someone having body issues i'm pretty sure i remember something very similar in like a one of them Late nineties, early two thousands Canadian PSAs about body issues. Yeah. I mean with with pants on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is Yeah, she sold it completely. Uh, I love Jennifer Connolly. She's she's amazing. I could have swore that she had been in more stuff that I had seen. Uh but she definitely was in one of the greatest movies of all time, The Rocketeer. <laughs> this such an all-star cast across the board, though, eh? Yeah, I, I think that's interesting because, like, I I don't think it was an all-star cast necessarily at the time. Mm. You were right. Think, sorry, with the exception of Ellen and Jennifer, like, I mean. Ellen's from The Exorcist, <laughs> right? Jennifer Connelly had, um, of course, had like Labyrinth and, and such under her belt at that point. Um, but I, I feel like, I mean, again, Marlon Wayans was just a comedy actor, and I really think it's the first thing I've really seen Jared Leto in. I can't remember. I don't think he was in much prior to that. Uh, Leto? Yeah. Uh, I guess American I Psycho. Is that before that though? I'm not great for movies and times. Same year. I know that. <laughs> yeah, they came at the same time. I just want to. I want to throw a little, a little bit more love Marlon Wayans' way. Mm. Though his character wasn't in the movie as complex as the others. Yes. He's he sold to me the perspective of a good kid who got into yes and was getting in over his head. It was probably almost even a good thing for his character that. Was it the Italians shot up that limo? Yeah. As he was about to go to the big times, I guess you could say. Yeah. And that would have been 
a point to no return for his character. If he had gone that way, there would have been no redeeming arc in the end. Yeah. Uh, I guess you're right, though, to kind of go back to what we were talking about. I mean, still, still pretty decent cast, huge cast now. Mm. The thing that I like about it is even watching it nowadays, knowing like all the, all these roles under their belts and the things that they've been in even recently. Yeah. The way that it was shot, film, acted, the score, everything. And this is how it should be. The, the actor's previous roles and reputation did not taint the movie negative or positive positively at yeah. all. Yeah. It had no impact was just the characters the acting yeah and they all represented them so well yeah oh 100 percent. like you weren't watching jennifer Connolly; you were watching marion mm-hmm. and i mean if any of them was going to pull me out it would have been marlon wayans because you know as you said he's known for the comedies and kind of the crappy parody comedies <laughs> well i mean those are supposed to be funny there's there's people who oh, yeah. like them oh yeah I mean, just because you have hyper-complex tastes, <laughs> uh, film all EA, as they would say. <laughs> I loved Scary Movie. I it's actually just, did not like it at all. It just, uh, it, it became very derivative. <laughs> <laughs> so overall, everything about this movie was the perfect little puzzle piece that fit together so that when I turned it off, I mentioned before I had a little depressive uh, episode, I had to go for a walk and I like instantly started questioning the things I have, relationships I've built, the, the way that I've treated and been treated by partners in the past, yeah. the friends I've lost. And yeah, I went for a walk. I settled down, played a bit of a game, had a beer. And then I was finally like, okay, mostly recovered from what just happened to me. <laughs> so I alluded to this before. I, I figure I'll talk about it a little bit more now. Um, so as I said, I have the director's call, the, the DVDs. So I actually had the benefit of looking at special features, which I normally don't have. And one of the, the special features was uh, Ellen basically interviewing um, uh, Selby, the, the author. Ooh, that'd be interesting. Yeah, it was a it was a twenty minute vignette, essentially, and it's so the author has had a very very rough life. He, you know, had is genetically predisposed to rage and had brain damage for being born with the umbilical cord around his neck and mm. was told, you know, had a bunch of ribs removed, right fought in world war ii had asthma so bad that he he was at the doctors the doctor didn't even come in the room and basically says like yeah you're not living Mm. like when he was like 28 and and when that happened there was a spiritual awakening for him he he had that moment that you actually just kind of talked about the what am i doing in the life what am i going to have and he says he's he self-professes to be a person with no skill no mm. talent. He's n- nothing exceptional, and he he just started writing, right? And and got into this writing, and his books are all dark and suffering. Um, I haven't read any of them. This is as I understand his his body of work, and 
his take on suffering in particular is actually absolutely fascinating to me. His view of it is it's not the suffering, or, or rather, suffering is completely avoidable. Pain isn't, but suffering is. Okay. Right? You're gonna you're gonna feel pain. And and where the suffering comes from is the getting lost in the drugs, the getting lost in the TV, the not stopping and going, yes, this hurts. Yes, this sucks. Now let's move on. And so I think that because I, I had the same thing, you know, every time I watch a movie, I stop and go, I, I, I stop and kind of have that contemplative moment. And I really think that's what I think that's what he's trying to go for. You, you show the suffering. And I mean, it, it's one of those things where if you just stop and acknowledge, like, think about it. If Sarah just acknowledged that she was lonely and went outside with the other women, she would have avoided all of this. I mean, you see that she had friends, but she was so, she couldn't express with or deal with the fact that she was feeling this pain from, you know, her deadbeat son who keeps stealing her TV to, to, you know, being the widow. And, and all she needed to do was go, go out and talk to them. I mean, she had friends. Look how excited all of them were when she was filling out her, her application to get on TV, um, to the, to them crying for her at the end of the film when they see how, how gone she was. And I think that's why I think the film is designed to evoke those feelings, to make you go and, and mm. think about the things because even it didn't need to expressly tell you to think about it, but you stop, you acknowledge, you be mindful of it and then you can move on. I guess structured that way. It makes a like a lot of sense, like knowing that perspective. Mm. I mean, those those two ladies should feel bad. Mm. They're <laughs> the two primary reasons why Sarah got into drugs in the first. They were the vehicles of that. They, I mean, she would have. She she would have found something to fall on it, be it some other addiction that she had, but her getting into uppers and downers and damaging weight loss routines were actually because of the suggestions of those two old women. So I was actually angry at them when I saw them crying. I'm like, to the point where I was like, how dare you cry for her? (laughs) Because that's a large portion your fault. I understand where you're coming from with that. I disagree with you. Mm. First of all, any type of get like, let's face it. There were a lot of fad diets, Mm. right? Like the idea of the half a grapefruit and an egg, and such for breakfast, it's like, yeah, it's not actually a terrible breakfast unless you're used to eating a lot more. Yeah. Like she was, right? Like it, it was actually fairly well balanced. But when you're in that mindset, when you're in the mindset to just lose weight as opposed to change your lifestyle, that's how that goes. Yep. Um, so, and the one who, who suggested the doctor, and, but a doctor said it. Doctors aren't wrong, right? Like it, so... I I understand your anger there, but I don't think there was any maliciousness there. She's still the one who ended up like actively calling her doctor saying, I think something's wrong. The doctor saying it's like, no, you've just finally gotten used to it. And her actively ignoring the doctors that had nothing to do with her friends. Mm. And in fact, if she had listened to that, she might not have had the same Mm -hmm. issues, but instead she started doubling her own medication and, and ignoring that. 
So, well, I agree. It's definitely not the pills and such. I mean, it's a big e epidemic. And mm. even though her reasons for this might have been to lose weight, I mean, people get that addiction for a lot of things that aren't selfish, for lack of better terms, right? Mm -hmm. like pain management stuff, too. So, I think... I think I derailed us. Mm. Uh, <laughs> to, get, to, to just get back on track. So... Knowing that about the the original author, yeah, and that perspective actually answers one of the questions I had. I guess some groundwork on this this whole seasonal structure to filmmaking. You enlightened me too when we were talking about the the tale of Princess Kaguya. Yeah. So I was sitting here. It started at summer, and I knew for a fact the type of story that would occur going through fall and into winter yeah but there was no spring yeah there was no new growth there was no rebirth there was no birds chirping yeah and knowing the author's perspective makes me understand why there's no spring though from a standard story perspective i i still have that craving for one yeah even though I really only kind of want it for Sarah a bit and mostly Tyrone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, you, yeah. I, I kind of figured that, that you would have that thought as well. I mean, I obviously noted the seasons and such as well, because we literally talked about that on our last media club. <laughs> Was it our last media club? No. Uh, no, a couple. one before that. A couple. Yeah. And I think that's probably a big reason why you actually don't get a spring set because like half the characters, well, again, word of God straight up says only one of them even has a chance at spring. The damage to Sarah is permanent. Like that, that speed freak mental damage. There's nothing you can do to change that. I mean, obviously, you know, Jared Leto or um, Harry has a, very clear permanence uh, effect there. Uh, literally losing an arm. Literally losing an arm. Uh, and Marion has herself so deep in that she's created her own negative feedback loop, right? She's, you know, she went into the prostitution so she can have the drugs to forget her life that's now happening for the prostitution. And I mean, she she technically could have. I mean, it would have to be its own whole movie. Yeah, there could be a redemption arc there, but she would have to actually hit rock bottom. Yeah, so that she could completely reinvent and change her life from the ground yeah. up. But I mean, Tyrone, you could see that spark of it in him. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and I was actually just about to say that. I think you have that spark. Mm. of it there so again you don't need to have the spring act because we know what because you can see what's happening from that mm -hmm. right like it well it's nice not to have that conclusion too yeah. as as lazy as i can be when it comes to film watching sometimes and i just want things spelled out for me yeah <laughs> it is nice to have that thought and not have that resolution yeah, I mean, so that's just a hallmark of 
good writing and filmmaking where you don't have to have everything tied up in a nice little bow. Yeah. Where things can be left to interpretation. Yeah. And think of it from an artistic standpoint too. If you had that spring scene, would you have had to go for that walk? Oh, probably. I was messed up halfway through. (laughs) (laughs) Right. but, But like, I know what you're saying though. The outcome would have been different in the end. I wouldn't have been thinking about it when I woke up this morning. Yeah. Just because we've just mentioned the end of Tyrone there, that guard that was yelling at him, that's the author. Oh. That's the person who wrote the book. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> this little cameo. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to kind of touch just into a few of the things that they did for realism in the film. Mm. Um, just kind of some of the stuff that they did to to give realism to the film like jared leto wasn't the only one who did that method acting mm. uh, jennifer Connolly actually did very similar she basically rented an apartment in the same area basically set up as it was in the film to and i, th- I think her father is actually a fashion designer and actually just threw herself into doing that exact same mm. same types of thing aronofsky actually told them it's like nope no sex no sugar for a month beforehand so they can try to have people have everyone there feel what that craving could be like mm-hmm. which is just fascinating to me doing that and apparently the scene where they um where they go to try to get the by the drugs when they're like at the end of the at, during the drought um, that was it was actually a bunch of homeless people and there were actually people shooting up there. Oh, geez. All while doing that, they knew what they wanted to, to do and were and had no problems going through with that. Other kind of fun facts is kind of just more wrap up thing. So stop me if you feel anything you want to talk about from it. One of the cool things for Aronofsky, because this is his second feature film. Hmm. And apparently he got into filmmaking by reading one of Selby's other books. Oh. Uh, At Last Exit to Brooklyn, I think is what it was called. That's actually what made him get into film, period. He's like, I want to tell stories. That'd be really rewarding for him. Yeah. They actually, you did actually have to fight to not have to edit the film because they were going to give it like an NC-17, which is above a rated R and would have made it made it so it couldn't have been anywhere. And um, they basically thought it's like, there's literally nothing you can cut out of this film. It is all that important. Managed to get that through, which is awesome. Yeah. There's kind of a few things. And of course the main music from Requiem, basically I think it was the same song throughout the entire thing that the, the string quartet, well, we've said this like a bunch of times. Like, I, I, I didn't really notice the music explicitly, and that's a good thing. I am honestly surprised you didn't notice. Like, yes, it is a fantastic. It is definitely a good thing. The music is done very well in this. Um, again, cuts out when you're hearing Sarah's monologues. So good. That song is heard literally everywhere nowadays. It is your dramatic trailer music. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
but the way they did it was like it starts playing with like the first time you hear the um when it starts you actually hear the tap 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 mm. that a conductor would do and you hear the string instruments tuning and they basically just kind of built it and and built it throughout the entire piece so the music was meant to be just as much of a a character in a way mm. and to get to that frantic panic at the end when literally everything's gone <laughs> gone to hell so it's yeah i it's a good thing that you didn't hear the music because i honestly half thought it'd be one of those things that would pull you out of the film for a second no it's well i mean when it's not just slapdash thrown on there when yeah. there's thought and forethought and it matches it well yeah you shouldn't notice it it should just enhance the scene that you're yeah. experiencing yeah and like i when i'm sitting down i'm not the only time i'm explicitly paying attention for the the score of a film is a when they go you know this is so and so um orchestra like that's a selling feature of the film yeah or alternatively if you remember back in the 2000s where films were just a uh, vehicle for soundtracks yeah yeah and yeah i should clarify like i didn't think it would pull you out of the film because it didn't work with the film mm. i honestly thought it might have pulled you out for a second because it's that song that you hear in all of the trailer oh. <laughs> dramatic commercial that's what i thought was <laughs> that's what i was slightly afraid of so i'm glad to hear that that didn't happen for you so I, yeah. there was nothing that pulled me out of the film but the f film itself made me want to leave the room <laughs> Yeah, because I was so profoundly <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah. Um. But I, I, at no point did I stay just because we were going to talk about this film and I should watch the whole thing. Yeah. I was definitely interested in what was going on. If the acting wasn't so good, I may not have held on. Yeah. I probably would have been. I wouldn't have turned it off because it was a bad movie. I would have turned it off because I was that uncomfortable. Yeah. It's just like I can't watch, you know, like uh, torture porn. Yeah. It's like really not for me. Yeah. So you're saying I should throw Hostel on the list. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's, it's a big thing because it's an art form to make something that makes you feel so uncomfortable. Mm. But at the same time, you know, this is something that you should watch. And again, just the cast overall, like amazing it's a list of actors and films that's like you don't even need to go through anything i'm surprised you didn't mention one character shooter mcgavin oh no i actually have a note for him <laughs> he was the per perfectly cast to be that like self-help guru yeah. like 1-800 number yeah i mean apparently a lot of that was just like off the dome like off the top of his head just improvising yeah. I mean, Shooter is best, <laughs> but I mean, he doesn't need to be redeemed. So I didn't yeah. feel like I needed to talk about yeah, him. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned because, again, I know we're wrapping up. Uh, I figured you would. I wasn't sure if he'd come up or not, but again, just the cast overall, it, absolutely amazing. Aronofsky is a fantastic director. Just watch his stuff. Um, I can't speak to the writer much. I haven't read any of his books. I didn't even realize this was based off a book until I was researching it <laughs> for this. 
Um, you know, I, I know that this is one of your favorite movies, but this firmly falls in the category for me of movie uh, that I recognize as a great. Yeah. But I actually just don't like. Yeah. But it's be it's purely because of the way that the film made me feel. So it accomplished what it set out to do, which is what makes it great. As opposed to some other films that <laughs> yes. we know we know are are great, but it's just like, oh, do I have to? <laughs> we do have to, and we're gonna. I know. Oh. In the future, <laughs> sha la la la. Yeah, as I said it, and, but insane. It, it's it, it's one of those movies that I strongly believe everyone should watch. It's an absolutely amazing film. It's. Unlike some other films that we won't name at this point, it, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's engaging. You're you're not bored during it. As I said, it's one of my favorite films, but it's not like it's not like um. I'm trying to think of another film. It's not like um, Four Brothers, which I would just drop everything and watch it if it was on. <laughs> this is a movie that I know I'm going to get a lot out of. I'm not going to throw it in randomly. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. So. so if you were if you were you were to rate to this movie, what kind of rating would you provide it? Mm. I would I would give this film a three out of five manic episodes and three out of five depressive episodes. <laughs> oh. That one's for you, Sin. <laughs> Yeah, I would give this, I'd give this, honestly, five out of five, five out of five fixes. All right. So then I wonder what's lacking in your life that you have to use this film to fill that void. Not enough Beauty and the Beast. Thanks again for joining us tonight. Uh, join us next week as we continue discussing Carol in Tuesday on the second wall. Uh, after that, in two weeks, we'll be back with uh, the Losers on the Media Club. Uh, make sure to like, follow us on your platform of choice. Again, all available at beautyandthebeast.com um, so you don't miss a discussion. And please share us out to anyone you think might need a media discussion fix themselves. <laughs> Later.